so the theme I'd like to explore this morning is the wisdom of non-duality. I'm aware, of course, that uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many people are in the hall, but everyone has different backgrounds, of course, in terms of practice and different uh, traditions they've moved through, or even within the Buddhist tradition, different streams um, of that. And so this this uh, word, non-duality, uh, some of you may be very familiar with, some may a little bit, and some really not very much at all. Uh, in Sanskrit, the word is advaita. Dva is two, ta is nus, and a is not, so not two-ness. Um, the overarching idea behind all of it is that where there's a duality between two things, we said two things have been split. Human beings have made a split between two things and a polarity in that split. One side of that polarity is deemed as good and desirable and another side of that polarity in in the very duality itself is deemed as not good and not desirable. And that split, in in the teachings on duality, that split uh, leads to suffering. It brings in a problem and it brings in suffering. And so there's the teachings of non-duality to kind of heal that split, (coughs) heal the split and, and the polarity that causes suffering, that's at the root of suffering, or some suffering. And the first thing before we go into this, is to actually say there's many kinds. Having said that as a principle, there's actually many kinds of non-duality. Many, many kinds of non-duality. And this is why this is actually such a complex area. So, traditionally in Western religion, the, one of the big dualities was between spirit and flesh, or spirit and nature. And running through Christianity, etc., that's been quite a big duality that has been uh, quite central or the sacred and the profane. Again, one is deemed good, desirable, one is deemed bad. Out of that split, uh, problems come. Uh, good and evil, right and wrong. Um, when we start getting more into the Buddhist traditions and Hindu traditions, etc., and uh, what becomes very central, one of the dualities that becomes very central is enlightened, not enlightened. Enlightenment and not enlightenment, that duality. Uh, Somewhere to get to, somewhere to go, nothing to get, nowhere to go. Um, But there are other kinds of dualities as well pleasure, pain, uh, subject, object, existence, non existence. These last ones are actually much more subtle, and I'll, I'll touch on them definitely. So just having said all that, we can already see this is a very complex area. It's a very rich area. It's not that simple. Oftentimes you get kind of very simple teachings and it doesn't really do justice to all of that. So perhaps foolishly, I want to kind of dive in here and give a bit of an overview. Um, I think it was in the talk on emotions, it was saying... Please hear what's being offered as complementary. So it will sound like I'm contradicting sort of later in the talk what I might have said earlier. Can, can it be heard as complementary? Uh, complementary approaches. So even duality and non-duality are complementary approaches rather than contradictory approaches. <clears throat> that complementariness, or whatever the noun is, is actually present right in the early discourses of the Buddha. Uh, this is often claimed that, uh, well, if one goes back to the Pali Canon, what one will mostly encounter is very dualistic teachings. Just flick through the Majjhimanikaya or something. Buddha comes across as very, very dualistic. He's very much about, we're aiming for the far shore, that's Nibbana, and this here is really not good. And uh, very dualistic in terms of striving and what you're trying to 
encourage, etc. That's most of what one encounters. But you also encounter something like this. This is from the Dhammapada. For whom there is neither a farther shore, nor a hither shore, nor a nearer shore. In other words, for whom there is no over there enlightenment or non-enlightenment. For whom there is neither a farther shore, nor a hither shore, nor both. Who is undistressed and unfettered, him I call a Brahmin. Him or her I call a Brahmin. Um, so even that complementariness uh, exists in, in the very earliest discourses. But for the most part, what we get is the Buddha talking very dualistically and very much about seeking and getting and arriving and striving, etc. So, for example, uh, he's talking about seeking and searching, which is already a dualistic, uh, a dualistic motion. Searching or seeking is of two sorts, I tell you. This is the Buddha. To be pursued and not to be pursued. Two sorts of searching. One to be pursued, one not to be pursued. When one knows of a search, as I pursue this search, unskillful qualities of heart and mind increase and skillful qualities decrease. That sort of search is not to be pursued. In other words my loving kindness, my generosity, my equanimity are getting less and their opposites are getting more. That's not to be pursued when that happens when I follow in a certain direction, when I search in a certain direction. But when one knows of a search, as I pursue this search, this seeking, skillful qualities of heart and mind increase and unskillful qualities decrease, that sort of search is to be pursued. Again, so he's really emphasizing seeking, kind of dualistic motion. But what's really important, if, if one goes into what he's saying, is the fruits that come out of it. So Buddha was immensely pragmatic as a teacher. It's basically like, what makes a difference is what, what you get out of it. How are the fruits? If the fruits are good, go for it. If they're not good, leave it alone. It's less about a philosophical position than a purely pragmatic position. So this, I want this kind of Pragmatism. I want to bring into this whole question of, of duality and non-duality. So any spiritual practice worth its salt must give an increase of positive qualities and a decrease of negative qualities. So generosity, equanimity, mindfulness, loving kindness, etc. But I would also highlight five more. Uh, that, that any path that's uh, useful, that's helpful, must include freedom. It must be leading to freedom. How can I judge duality or not duality, which is the right path? It must bring a freedom. Uh, freedom coming from a different understanding of things, a whole different way of seeing things, just a, a different understanding uh, of the self and of the world. Number one. Number two must also uh, express itself in ethical care, in concern, in, in uh, care for how we are with each other. Non ethics, you know, stealing, lying, cheating, harming, etc., that comes actually out of self view and non freedom. So anything that's supposed to be bringing freedom should express itself in ethics. Number three, compassion care, a wideness, a widening of the, the circle of our care and a deepening of that care. If that isn't happening with any path, if actually one's radius, one's diameter of care uh, is staying quite constrained, something's not, something's not penetrating deeply enough. One might, sometimes you hear people say, well, I don't really do that. I don't really uh, care about that. I don't really do much about the state of the planet or whatever because it's all empty after all. False, empty, hollow words. Is that opening of the care, that widening of the care will be uncomfortable. It's not that it's necessarily always easy. We wrestle with this. I have so much energy, I have so much time, and the calling is, is immense for helping in the world. 
And if I think that opening my heart and letting go of the self and increasing in love is always going to be just easy and effortless in, in the choices that it hands me for my life, for my energy, maybe that's a pipe dream. And maybe if I don't care, and if I say, oh, I'm into non-duality, I don't care, maybe I'm just avoiding that wrestling and something else is in the driving seat other than freedom, other than compassion. Fourth one, needs to express itself in a quietening of the usual human motion to gravitate towards pleasure, to want pleasure and not to want the unpleasant, to avoid the unpleasant. So if a path is not giving someone a kind of openness of equality, it doesn't matter if things are difficult, if things are easy, if things are lovely, if things are not so lovely. We're not so pulled this way and avoiding that way. So again, path of non-duality, path of duality, that's one of the fruits it should bring. And also, that there's a kind of, I feel, an endless uh, wish, an endless uh, longing even, to continue one's growth, to continue expanding the heart, to continue practicing and deepening even though I might feel very free, even though I might feel very free in myself, I still want to grow, I still want to expand my capacities. Why? Because even though I'm free, there's a kind of infinite range of developability of how capable I am to offer help in the world, how skillful I am, how attuned, how sensitive, how much my energy, my capacity, my insight, my, my clarity... So I might feel fine, I might feel perfectly free. But I'm still interested in that. That also needs to be there. So the question is, what works to bring this fruit? It's just pragmatic. What works to bring this fruit? <clears throat> in this area, as in all, all always in, in spiritual uh, areas. Being very careful of the mind's inclination, even the heart's inclination, to grasp on to notions that have a kind of romantic appeal or an intuitive appeal um, or, or to assumptions. So in this area, for instance, someone you might hear someone say or read or you might even think to yourself, I want a path that goes beyond the mind beyond the mind, beyond concepts. Beautiful, important, necessary. The mind and concepts are, in what they are, they're naturally dualistic. Concepts by their nature are dualistic. How can mind and dualistic concepts go beyond the mind and concepts? How is that possible? It's impossible. That sounds good and it sounds like it makes sense, but is it true? It has a certain appeal. I just drop concepts. Is it true? How much have I pushed to find out? So, as I said at the beginning, there's many kinds of non-duality. One of the non-dualities I pulled out is this, Nothing to do, nowhere to go. You're already enlightened. You're already awake. Very occasionally, very occasionally, uh, you might find yourself speaking to someone and who says this and, and kind of says, I go by that. And very occasionally, pr- probing a little bit, one actually finds that it's really just an expression of laziness. It's just, just a small fraction of people. It's just an expression of laziness. And their saying, I'm into non-duality, is really just a kind of euphemism for I don't practice. Again, going back to the last talk about truthfulness and how important that is, that level of kind of ruthless integrity. And one can tell a person like that, one occasionally runs into them in spiritual circles, that there isn't, for instance, this... uh, 
letting go of the inclination to, to seek pleasure and to to avoid pain. That's still kind of very much in the driving seat and you can see it by the way a person lives, by the choices they make. Oftentimes this kind of philosophical position or metaphysical position, nothing to do, nowhere to go, already enlightened, actually has its roots in how our relationship is to doing in practice. It's not so much a philosophical position, actually coming out of our relationship to doing. And it's not about laziness. It's about the fact that it's very, very common. Almost everyone feels that when in my practice I'm engaged in a doing, when I'm trying to do, I feel tight. I end up feeling tight to some degree or another. And that feels uncomfortable. And it colors my relationship with doing. And I think, I don't know about doing. So maybe a person says, I won't do. I won't do. Either I just stop practicing or I'll have... sit, walk, whatever it is, but I won't do. And maybe in that doing of the non-doing, the tightness drains, tightness goes. It's like, ah, that's better. Great. But, is that the end of the story? Is that as deep as we can go as human beings? It might well be, and this, please hear the complementariness I said before, it might well be though there's something really important for everyone perhaps at some point to experiment with a non-doing in practice. That sometimes practice can become tight, can very much become, I'm trying to get something then, in the future, over there that I don't have here. And in the very kind of feelings and notions that are feeding practice, the whole thing kind of is squeezed out of the present moment in a way. Is squeezed into the future and, and feels very constrained. Maybe it's possible to soften all that, to let a lot of that go, and move into more, instead of a mode of striving, more a mode of opening, openness, receptivity. Receptivity perhaps to something that's already here. What's already here? What's already here that perhaps we're overlooking? So what is it to see the now, the present moment, not, not as a stepping stone for something in the future, not as an intermediary, a, a launching off point for something in the future? What is it to have a different relationship with the now that's already here? What is it to notice that I might do this, I might do that, but actually already here is awareness. There's awareness right here. Am I noticing that? What is it to let go, soften, open and be receptive to the quality that whatever I do, awareness is here. a beauty in that and an opening in that. And again, in the spirit of complementariness and also time constraints, that's great, wonderful, not to stop there. Absolutely not to stop there. It's, It's nowhere near deep enough in terms of the capacity of the Dharma to radically change our sense of what existence is. But very, very helpful, very beautiful, very healing. But this doing, non-doing, should I do, should I not do, relationship with doing, non-doing, is very much often at the, uh, at the heart, at the center of this question of duality and non-duality. It's not all of it, it's part of it. It can be that when we get into a mode of doing, non-doing, non, sorry, when we get into a mode of doing, what's very easily caught up with it is the whole notion of development and progress. Uh, very easily goes from doing to a sense of uh, possible progression or development. And right quickly comes into that, very easy as we were talking about last time, the sense that means I'm not good enough. That means the self is not being accepted in this moment. That what's happened, the inner critic has got hold of the practice, has hijacked the practice. And if that's the case, it will feel 
it really will feel that the ego is kind of uh, belittled or it will feel some pain feels uh, yeah pain painful to to have that sense and so that might be there in the heart in the sense of things important to address but is that pain of the inner critic intruding and hijacking, is that enough ground to decide the truth of doing or non-doing as a truth, of duality or non-duality? It's just a feeling I'm having because of something that's come into the practice. I cannot decide truth. So I've got some choices here as a practitioner. Either I can drop doing I can drop doing. If I do that, and the people regularly report, drop doing, and I find in my practice that the problematic self-view quietens. Because I'm not so much doing and not so much striving, the whole kind of measured self, etc., quietens. Ah. Some relief, some spaciousness from that. However, it's not been seen through. It's just been kind of tucked into bed for a while. It's not been seen through. It's not been penetrated and understood. It's just that it's less obvious right then. It's less active. It will arise again. Most, most surely it will arise again when we do. When we do. And, and our life is full of doing. It's full and full of doing. We find ourselves leaving the meditation or leaving the retreat, engaged in doing again. Look what's come again. The self, the problematic self-view, the inner critic, because it's tied up with doing. We haven't seen through the doer. And if my practice is too much about non-doing, I might end up with a practice that actually bears very little resemblance to my life, which is full of doing. Full of doing. All kinds of doing. But it is possible, it very much is possible that this non-doing can reveal something, as I said before. However, what it reveals, or how to say, to the extent that there is mindfulness, and the more mindfulness, the more it will reveal. So already I've got a little bit of a paradox there. Non-doing as a sort of avenue in practice will reveal more to me about freedom the more mindfulness there is. Again, not quite so simple. One of the things it will reveal, if there's quite a lot of mindfulness, and I just say, I'm just going to practice non-doing, I'm just going to practice non-doing, just being. If there's enough mindfulness, what that will do is reveal the hidden, subtle doing that already exists, that we don't see as doing. And he said, oh my goodness, look, there's all this level of doing that I hadn't even seen. So this question of non-doing, is it really non-doing? If I say no-do, is it really no-do? Or is it that I just haven't seen the doing? No-do, maybe not no-do, no-do, maybe no-see-do. Not maybe, actually is. Deeper one goes, and more sensitive is all kinds of doing. My person says, if I try and do something in my practice, if I play with the breath, if I manipulate the breath, if I contemplate in a certain way impermanence or something else or emptiness, if I uh, cultivate samadhi or calm or loving kindness, I will become the meditator. And you may have heard, person may have heard, and the whole point of meditation is to be rid of the meditator. Again, something sounds very nice. But I have to be careful of the subtle doing and the subtle, uh, the subtle self that comes in. Because I can just as easily become the one who doesn't meditate. Have to see through something, have to see really deeply through something. So one possibility is dropping the doing. Another possibility is learning to do without this problematic self-view, without this measuring of the self and the self-worth dependent on how well I do. One way of going about that is actually replacing the difficult self-view with a skillful 
self-view. In the Mahayana teaching, it's a very beautiful teaching about Buddha nature. And it's actually extremely complex. I don't have time to go into it. But one of the reasons that it's there is actually this. So one doesn't undermine oneself and underestimate one's capacity as a practitioner, as a human being. And actually sees oneself as having Buddha nature, having something beautiful and pure at the core of one's being, so to speak. But it is a very complex teaching. It's a very complex teaching. Um, the word garba is translated as nature, Buddha garba. Uh, it means womb, the womb of enlightenment, also the embryo, the offspring, what we give birth to, a sprout or conception. So it actually means a lot of stuff. It's not simple. The examples in the traditions are. For example, Buddha nature, your Buddha nature is like a treasure that you own buried underground, under your house, and you don't know it's there. Or honey, tasty honey, in the middle of a swarm of bees. Or a seed with a potential to sprout. Or a grain of wheat or rice or whatever in its husk. So, from the Uttara Tantra is one of the um, classic Mahayana texts on Buddha nature. As the essential grain is covered by the husk and cannot be consumed by any person, those seeking food and so on must themselves extract it from the husk. Similarly, sentient beings have delusions and their Buddha nature is mixed with their stains. As long as it is not freed from the stains of delusions, that long the activities of enlightenment will not extend through the universe. So we need to actually do something. Uh, How do I get it? If it's honey amongst a swarm of bees, how am I going to get it? If it's grain in a husk, how am I going to get it so I can eat it? Another word for Buddha nature is Buddha potential. And like a seed has a potential... We have the potential for Buddhahood, but I need to do something. I need to give it the right conditions to, for it to actually bear the fruit. So, not again, not such a simple teaching. How do I get it? How do I uncover it? How do I manifest it? How will I enjoy it? It's not enough just to know that apparently I have a treasure. Apparently I have a treasure. They tell me I have a treasure. Great. <laughs> or to mistake my treasure. You have a gold treasure, and I say, it's this bowl. Maybe I can sell it on eBay, I'll get about 30 quid. <coughs> when actually my treasure is, is, you know, I don't know, $100 billion of gold bullion. I actually have to, I need to know what it is, the Buddha nature. I need to be able to access it and know its worth, to buy something with it, to use it. Still, again, and I hope I'm not confusing you, in in the spirit of complementarity, even if I have a vague sense of something, a misunderstood sense of something, I can trust that, and then that will bring a confidence. And if it does bring faith, if it does bring, bring a sense of one's beauty, one's preciousness, capacity of trusting one's potential, go for it. It's moving one on, on the path. So, so the second possibility is learning to do without a problematic self-sense. So one possibility is Buddha nature. Another possibility for some is going back to this question that I was talking about last week. What do I really, really, really want? Following that question, being pulled by that question. And if I'm in touch with that, if I'm in touch with that deeply, and, and, and the sources, the deep sources of my longing in my being, <coughs> then I'm pulled in my practice, and I'm pulled by love, and I'm pulled by my deep longing. And that's a very, very different energy than being pulled by should, and being pulled by a sense of not being good enough. I'm being pulled by love, my love, my authentic love, because I've asked that question, what do I really want? And it's not about the inner critic having hijacked practice anymore. Someone said to me a few weeks ago, 
when I do, it feels like not doing when it's coming out of love. When I do and it's coming out of love, it feels like non-doing. And if a person's in contact with that love, in contact with the deepest longing of our being, can almost feel impersonal. It's like it's gone right through the floor of ourself down to something kind of more universal, more primal. And it's love moving. There's a how, what will I do for love? How will I stretch myself for love? And practice is asking us to stretch ourselves. Or perhaps, how does love want to stretch me? How does it want to use me? Take me, use me. I surrender to that. It's come through asking that question and, and contacting something. I realize I have so much to say, I'm going to leave bits out here and there. It's okay. Um, sometimes it's necessary for a person to actually stop practicing for a while. And I know quite a few people who've done that. Because the inner critic has hijacked practice to such an extent that it, it, it can't move out of that loop. And so just stop, just put it down, just do something else. And, and regather and refine the why of my practice. Refine that longing, that love. Just a small point, sometimes this whole resistance to doing is because if one looks, I'm not resistant to doing, for instance, cooking myself a meal that might taste good. That's a doing. Why am I not so resistant? I mean, sometimes I am, but why generally am I speaking my life? Am I not so resistant? Because with not too much effort, I can create for myself through the doing enough satisfaction and enjoyment that I feel satisfied. And so I don't gripe about the doing and the non-doing. It's not an issue. The similar thing with practice, it's like actually learning that uh, we, we actually, learning to have some enjoyment and pleasure as a fruit in practice. And then that minimizes this whole issue of doing and non-doing because I actually feel satisfied through the doing. If a person is engaged in doing, is engaged in cultivating, let's say, concentration, samadhi, metta practice, uh, some particular avenue of insight practice where they're really trying to look in a particular way, or cultivate a certain quality, sooner or later, and usually sooner, a person will notice, a practitioner will notice, when I cultivate the positive... I seem to notice more of the exact opposite of what I'm trying to cultivate. It seems that I'm going backwards, a person might think. When I try and cultivate concentration, what I notice more is distraction. When I cultivate metta, what I notice more is irritability, etc. The seeking of a positive quality, the cultivation of positive quality, will necessarily, because of the way perception works, invite the perception of its corresponding negative quality. It has to. It has to. I'm looking for white, I will see not white. I'm looking for tall, I will see not tall. I'm looking for meta, I will see irritability. It dualities go together as pairs and perception works at kind of separating them out, standing them out in contrast. So it will necessarily bring bring that together. So, again here, I notice this, and what do I do with that? What do I do with that as a practitioner? Uh, I could say, it's pointless. I seem to be going backwards. It's, it seems to be inviting more pain, because I'm interested in going this way, and I keep being shown the other direction. So I'll throw the whole thing out. Probably throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I have, again, choices here. 
So one possibility is learning to cultivate, learning to cultivate concentration, loving kindness, a certain avenue of insight, etc., etc., without the pain of overgrasping. That's an art. It's the delicacy, the beauty of that art. Moving towards something, I have an aspiration, but holding it very lightly can can absolutely be developed. Second possibility, though, is to actually be interested in these dualities and aware of dualities as they arise. So I'm aware of kindness and non-kindness. I'm aware of, say, peace and non-peace. And aware of dualities and letting them go. Not chasing one. Not prioritizing one. So a mode of working of non-duality. I see pleasure, let it go. I see pain, let it go. Don't, don't pull apart these dualities. See the dualities and aware of them as a practice. Does this make sense? So that's actually more than saying just be mindful. It's more than saying just be mindful because we actually, the habit of the mind is to polarize dualities, is to pull dualities apart automatically. So yes, mindfulness will help, but actually prioritizing a mode of practicing where one's not chasing this or that, even a lovely thing, even a lovely dharmic quality. I'm going to come back to that. Both these, both learning to cultivate without the problematic overgrasping of self-view, and letting go of dualities. Both are important. But earlier I was saying, we need to see through the doer. I need to see through doing and the doer, and see through it deeply, completely uh, see its emptiness. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? Sometimes, or quite regularly, practitioner reports... I had an experience of no self. I had an experience of no self. And oftentimes, a person is very excited about this, quite rightly. And a person will say, I, had, I just slipped into a, non, a completely non-dual awareness. Or I was in a mode where I was beyond the subject-object duality. And sometimes, not again, just some portion of times, one, one goes a little bit into this and... and hears from the person and finds that actually what really happened is they, it's just that they were really, really absorbed in what they were doing for a period. Uh, so they were really, really um, into the breath or into washing up the dishes or really in the flow playing tennis or dancing or whatever it was. Really, really one with whatever they were doing. Beautiful, really precious experience as a human being. Lovely and important, but probably not going to bring much freedom in one's life in a long-term impact. Even if one has a few of those moments, probably not going to make uh, much, much long-term freedom coming out of that. People who do a lot of uh, meditation, long-term meditators, and I suppose particularly people on long-term retreat, but not, not just those people. As, as one deepens, one notices a movement in the consciousness. Seem to go into an experience or experiences of no self. And then later some time goes by and the self comes back. And some time goes by and I'm back without the self. No self, self. No self, self. No self, self. And of course at first this is quite exciting, quite new, quite lovely, immensely opening, freeing, touching heart, etc. Mostly, at first, almost everyone at first, will try to stay in the place of no self. It's natural, it's so lovely and captivating and freeing. We'll try to, and we'll get frustrated by the movement out of the no self. So I have so much freedom, I felt so expansive and so one with everything, of so much love, and now here I am back in my old kind of grumbly, separate, and frustrated by that. What do I need to understand that will bring an open freedom that embraces self and no self 
totally equally. What do I need to understand that is larger than that movement from no self to self to no self to self? What do I need to understand? Could say, well, everything's impermanent. You know, live with it. True? True? Is that satisfying? Is that deep enough? Is that full enough? Has that penetrated fully enough? I could say, if I've really gone through this a a lot, I could say, the no-self is what's real. The self, the the way things seem when there's us, not real. The no-self is real. The other is not. And in the no-self being real, that means that a self getting enlightened or not enlightened is is moot, a moot point, and therefore the whole thing's non non-dual. But to really, really be convinced that the no self is the real thing and the self is not the real thing, first of all, is going to take a lot, a lot of convincing, an enormous amount of convincing of going back and forth and back and forth, spending a lot, a lot, a lot of time in this no self, and s- trying to s- keep it there. But again, we have to ask, is it true? Is it true that the no-self is, is real and the self? It seems to agree with all the teachings I read, etc., and the talks I hear, and da-da-da, but is it real? Is it true? It seems true. It might even seem, eventually, much more authentic. But is it true? How will I know? For a practitioner going through this kind of thing, usually, or often, with all that, at the same time, as it's deepening, and as there's this lovely, lovely opening to not-self, there's one of the dangers of giving an overview talk, is I can't spend long enough on these areas and sort of go into them enough, but moving through a lot of territories, okay. Spending time in that, something else begins to open. Something, a sense of something other something other than the usual sense of life, something vast that seems to disappear when the self comes back and open out, reveal itself when the self goes. Something other and vast, a sense of vast awareness, a sense of the great silence, the unfathomable silence sense of peace pervading all things, of love woven into the fabric of the universe. These are all possibilities. Sense of some huge space of emptiness, nothingness. And somehow we are in that. We are in that. It embraces and contains effortlessly everything. So touching, so beautiful, so freeing, so expanding when we come into contact with that. We're in that and all experience is in that, in that vast awareness, in that great silence, etc. And because all experience is in, is that again, there's a non-duality there. Some of you know the very famous poem from Rumi. I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. It's famous. We realize we're actually in what we've been looking for. Beautiful. To hang out there, to get familiar with it, to open the being and let it touch the cells and touch the heart and transform something. Immense value here. Immense possibility of transformation. Real beauty there from the being. I mean, it might be, again, as this experience goes deeper, there's a kind of oneness in all that. So it's not only that this great silence or great awareness contains everything, it's also that the fabric of things is the same as that. It's the same as silence. What seems solid is actually silence. What seems solid is actually awareness. What seems solid is actually love seems like everything, all phenomena, are that, that, with a capital T. And again, there's a non-duality in that. They're not 
dual, separate things, opposites, they're all that. Beautiful, mystic, deep. Another poem from Rumi expresses this. I am filled with you, the you is this, that. I am filled with you, skin, blood, bone, brain and soul. There's no room for lack of trust or trust. Nothing in this existence but that existence. And it may be, it may be that through this or some other way, this question about the self, no self, self, no self, maybe that it goes deeper and at some point a coin drops. At some point a coin drops. The appearance of self is just that. It's just the appearance of self. It's just an appearance like any other appearance. End of dichotomy, self, no self. Very, very important stage in practice. So self is free to come and go. There can be the appearance of self and the disappearance of self. It's fine, it's just an appearance. It's fine for this or that quality that's maybe not so flattering to come up. Agitation, irritation, uh, whatever it is, can come up and not be self-reference, just an appearance. doesn't take away from this freedom of appearances to come and go in the vastness of things. Even freedom, even my sense of freedom can come and go and doesn't touch this more vast sense of liberation. Hugely important is at the end at the end of practice some people say it is is that a full enough understanding is that a full enough freedom some people say it is Buddha had a chat with a cosmologist who said everything is one he said that's just a view it's just one of the views you can have based on perception the Buddha's teaching actually goes even deeper than this and please complementariness All of this is immensely useful, not throwing anything out at all. This is the Buddha talking. That practitioner who sees no essence in existence, like one seeking flowers in Udambara trees, as a kind of fig tree that doesn't flower, like one seeking flowers in an unflowering tree, will give up the here and there, the near and far shore enlightenment dualities. Like a snake, it's decrepit old skin. One who sees no essence in existence. This isn't pointing to nihilism. At first we hear this, many people, it sounds like he's just saying nothing exists, nothing's important. It's much more subtle than that, what's being said. Much, much more subtle. So the Buddha's talking about Another kind of duality, the most subtle kind of duality. He's talking to a guy called Kachayana here. <clears throat> this actually is in the Pali Canon, for those of you that are interested historically with the way these things evolved. That things exist, O Kachayana, is one extreme. That they do not exist is another. But I, the Tathagata, the Buddha, accept neither is nor is not. And I declare the truth from the middle position. Middle. Not is, not is not. So, in explaining this, uh, to paraphrase it, ordinary beings, unenlightened beings, we're used to seeing and thinking and conceiving dualistically. Seeing, thinking, speaking also of ourselves and phenomena, things, appearances, in terms of is and is not. And in doing so, then we take things and situations and problems and desired things and all of it to be really real, really, we say inherently real, or really not, passed out of existence or never existing. And so doing, we cling. Because of that we cling and we act in samsara and we act in a way that causes suffering. The Buddha says, but for those with wisdom correctly perceiving the truth 
of how phenomena arise, abide, pass. There is no is, and no is not. So this duality, existence, non-existence, the most subtle and profound duality. Phenomena means everything. So even includes awareness, even includes now, the present. And sometimes you get um, kind of, I don't know what to call it, easy kind of teachings that say, you're always aware, and it's always now, so what's the problem? That's a paraphrase. Uh, Too easy, too easy. Even if I say the vast awareness, that still tend to give that a kind of essence. And the Buddha is saying, it's not is, and it's not is not. To say that, awareness, space, time, the present moment, these building blocks of our existence that we take completely for granted to say they actually don't really exist, but they don't not exist. That's much, much harder. It's much harder to understand. It's much harder to to teach about. It's much harder. As the Buddha said after his awakening, this what I've discovered is profound, subtle, hard to see, discernible only by the wise, etc., we have poems, and you know, Rumi is so beautiful as a, as a poet, as a mystic poet, so beautiful. But it's ambiguous. Which level is he talking about? Hard to say. I can teach, a teacher can teach in a way, and sometimes it's much more attractive to people, not to be too precise about all this, and actually just speak in kind of open sense and vagueness. I could have stopped the talk you know, ten minutes ago. And just leave it very open and leave it a vague hint of something and the heart is moved. But it's ambiguous. And we could be using the same words and be talking about very, very different levels of insight and freedom. Or I might think, well, I don't want it to be a bit more canal. Yeah, you've just opened this whole other thing and it sounds really complicated now and I like the simplicity. But it's my liking of simplicity is that enough of a reason for me to decide the truth or untruth of something. So it might sound like, <clears throat> it might sound like for some people that uh, I said, I, you've said something, I've heard that, I don't understand, and it sounds like you're talking at a level I doubt that I ever could understand. Despair comes up, potentially. Don't, not to despair, uh, it's actually, it's really possible to see this. And actually the Buddha already gave us a clue. And he said, but for those with wisdom correctly perceiving the truth of how phenomena arise, abide, and pass, there is no is and is not. How? That one word is a clue. It's a massive clue. And there are actually many ways and many possibilities of going into this, this, this level of things. Earlier in the talk, I talked about a mode of practice, a way of practicing kind of non-duality, a mode of non-duality. I won't feed non-dualities by chasing one and rejecting the other. Good, bad, peace, agitation, concentration, distraction, mindfulness, non-mindfulness, equanimity, non-equanimity, blah, 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 blah. I won't feed dualities. I'll see the dualities and I'll just let them be. I'll let go of picking up either end of that stick. I won't feed them by grasping or aversion. In the moment, moment after moment, I I, I use that as a mode of practice. I won't go toward or away from any duality. A mode of practice. What happens if I develop that as a practitioner and I do it and I just do it and I do it over and over? One thing I notice is suffering drains. Suffering drains out of the moment. I'm giving up suffering because I'm giving up energizing greed and aversion. Ah, Peace comes, but I'm not chasing that peace. And so if I don't chase the peace, more peace comes. Suffering drains. (coughs) But even more significant, as I really 
play with this, if I, if I really take it on board, really play with it, I notice something even more significant, which is that my sense of self also begins to fade, to drain, to quieten. The sense of substantiality of things, solidity of things, inner and outer, begins to get less. Things begin to feel more and more insubstantial the less I chase dualities. And the very phenomena that are arising, the appearances themselves, begin to fade, to blur, to dissolve, to fade from consciousness. It's hard, it would be hard for me to overstate the significance of that. What does it imply? As I be, if one begins to go into this and sees this relationship, the more I chase du- the less I chase dualities, the less things appear. The more I chase dualities, the more solid, substantial, and the more stuff appears, and the more self. The implication is that self and phenomena and appearances are what we call dependent arisings. Their very appearance, their very appearance as something solid, is dependent on the way the mind relates to them, dependent on clinging. With the sense of self, sense of anything, is actually a spectrum. Rather than the person coming saying, I had an experience of no self, actually had an experience of less self, and can have an experience of a little less self, and a little less, and a little less just as we can have an experience of a very, very solid and built-up self, there's a continuum there. And we move on that continuum. Big, solid self, normal self, a little less, a little less, a little less, a little less. We move on that continuum dependent on clinging. More clinging, more self, more solid self. Less clinging, less self, less solid self. Which is the real self? The solid one? I see, I've just manufactured it through a lot of clinging. No self? Completely no, that's actually quite a radical, rare experience. A very little self? Somewhere exactly the midpoint, wherever the hell that is? In there, which is the real self? Does the self have a reality other than what's being created by perception, fabricated by perception? So this is one way. What goes for self also goes for phenomena. This is one way. Second way is actually using this vastness. Most people will go through this this vastness and then actually beginning to question the reality of the vast awareness. Does it have an essence? Does it have a reality? And using that beautiful vast awareness or peace or whatever it is as a stepping stone and seeing through that. And seeing that awareness and mind, or whatever we call it, also neither exists nor not exists. It's the middle way. Another possibility is through logical analysis, and don't have time to talk about it. There's ways of actually using the reflective mind to cut through the belief in real existence or real non-existence. All of them are important. All are important. That level of understanding that the self and all phenomena, all phenomena without exception, are dependent arisings uh, and so are empty, I cannot arrive at just by non-doing. It's a very probably won't arrive at just by non-doing. And it's not just about hanging out in a state of not-self or less-self. I've gone much deeper. It's gone much deeper. The actual very build, the building blocks of existence are called into question. Awareness, space, time, etc. And it's gone to a place because I've seen a connection, like a scientist sees an experiment a hundred, you know, thousand, ten thousand times. I've seen a connection. It's undeniable. I no, no, no longer need a belief of something's eternalism or oneness or whatever. It's gone beyond that. Sometimes one comes across teachings that only emphasize non-duality, only emphasize non-duality. 
And oftentimes, not always, but sometimes there's, there's a sort of story that a person has and the person is saying, stop trying, stop trying, stop meditating. That's the message. Or their personal story, it often is quite similar personal stories that you might hear. It's like, I was trying and then I gave up. Or I was really depressed and then I just gave up. Something, 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 then I gave up and then I awakened. Very common However, as far as I can tell, at best, that awakening will only lead to the level of oneness or interconnectedness or a sense of it's always now or there's always awareness or the vast awareness or something like that. All of which is great. But, and I could of course be wrong, but I've never come across someone who just emphasizes non-duality, just, that's reached that other level of understanding. And that full depth. The habit human beings have of seeing reality in things, seeing an isness in things or an is notness, is into our, as I said, the basic elements of our existence is so deeply ingrained, is so habitual at the core of our being, it needs a direct challenge. It needs to be undermined, to be pried loose, to be uh, to to have different ways of seeing that turn it on its head. In Tibetan, the, one of the words for meditation is gom. I think gom. It means familiarity. I need to familiarize myself with a whole other way of seeing, and it takes uh, the implication is familiarity takes effort and uh, repeating. I familiarize myself with a view, a view that frees through effort, through repetition, through doing. So one who's seen at that level has access to a different kind of non-duality and actually sees things or has recourse to a way of seeing things very, very differently, very differently. Seeing our whole existence very differently. This level of non-duality then kind of in a way kind of includes all the others. It includes a non duality of pleasure and pain, good and evil, nirvana, samsara. And also will absolutely for sure bring compassion and ethics and all the rest of it. It can't just be an intellectual position because it won't go deep enough. I have to see something in meditation. If I don't it won't make a real difference. is familiarizing and understanding this experience, these experiences, we should say, or experiences in general, seeing them as dependent risings and empty that uh, I need. Familiarizing and understanding. Otherwise, the habit of the mind, I'll just go back to my default views. I believe in some kind of self to some degree, even if it's a subtle or cosmic, mystical, vast, universal self. Self is awareness. I believe in a present moment. I believe in space and time. Habits, like an elastic band, I'll just go back to the default views. So, to, to wrap up, again, I know I've moved through a lot of territory. Can it all be complementary? So all of this is stepping stones. None of this is thrown out. It's all stepping stones. All of it's helpful. They're just different levels of, so to speak, understanding or working. And we need to find what's helpful for me right now and use that, and really use it. And it could be, for instance, with a sense of vast awareness, just or vast uh, silence or whatever, that that's having such a beautiful effect on the heart in terms of freedom and compassion that I actually stay there for, I don't know, a year, two years, three years and let it really seep in and have its effect use it we have periods in our practice can be years and the time comes when it's time to question and time to move on and how how hungry how deep is my hunger for the truth so there's different kinds of non-duality that I can use we can use as different views and going in and out of these views that are helpful and I go in of a mode of seeing and out of a mode of seeing. Duality, non-duality. 
It's fine. Use it all. They're both helpful. In a way, the Dharma is kind of offering us this, this massive feast of possibility, of ways we can work and approaches. Use different, use all our intelligence and all, all the fullness of our being, different things at different times. It's all, it's all there. And take us to that, eventually everyone, to that fullness of understanding and the, the deepest level of non-duality, which brings the deepest freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.